We've been here before. This isn't unprecedented. We have had pandemics that coincide with lynchings, that coincide with war. Um, and so I say that to say, again, what makes this uniquely a Black American experience, and, and, and Raphael did point that out, right, is that white supremacy in this country thrives off of racism. And every group that was at one point not considered white has bared the wrath of white supremacy and oppression. At Clio, our mission is to transform the practice of law for good, and increasing access to justice is a major component of that. Clio fundamentally believes in equity and justice as critical pillars of the legal and judicial system, and we are committed to using our platform to advocate for change. In light of recent events, we're conducting a series of interviews to address the systemic racism that is pervasive in our society. We need to be talking about these topics in the legal industry so that we may create a more equitable and accessible justice system. We hope these conversations can play some part in moving things forward. Today's guest is Andrea Alexander, an attorney based in New York City who defines herself as a legal advocate by day and a social change advocate by night. Andrea, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So Andrea, you're in New York City during an extremely turbulent time, first with a COVID-19 outbreak where you've obviously been at the epicenter of the uh, the outbreak in, in America, and now with the protests over the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and others who've lost their lives due to systemic injustice. What have the past few weeks and months been like for you? <laughs> so I'm going to throw another thing on top of the things you just mentioned. Um, I had a baby six months ago, and so as wow. <laughs> So just to layer on top of uh, that as a backdrop, you've got a new baby, a a new human being in in this world. A new human being that's also male. Yes. So I came back uh, and actually my first day was the beginning of the work from home orders. And so uh, what had been uh, maternity leave uh, extended further. Um, and I, and I must admit as as daunting as that sounds for a lot of people, he's been the silver lining in all of this and having an opportunity to spend more time with him. Uh, I think another conversation, a conversation for another day is the U S is family planning and lack of leave time, adequate leave time for families, uh, to nurture, to nurture newborns. But, um, again, conversation for another day. Um, so we got, you know, I started back and figuring out navigating working from home um, and taking care of him. And then a few weeks ago, the trickle in. And, and I also want to say I've kind of taken a step back from cable news about four years ago, decided that I just could not, um, in order to function um, and not feel traumatized and re-traumatized daily, took a step back. So yeah. um, I've had a, you know, you have to have a healthy relationship throughout all this, these last three months. Um, fortunately, as I said, I'm Brooklyn born and raised. There are few of us here, but fortunately I have family and friends and good mental hygiene, um, staying in touch with folks. So that was rather seamless, um, you know, and then navigating work with a lot. Uh, with the protests, it's been interesting um, in response to the injustices that we're seeing in response to the murders. Um, and that part and I'm sure, you know, I've listened to conversations you had with Raphael, and I'm sure many of the conversations you're having with family and friends. Sadly, you almost go numb as a Black person in America uh, when you hear yet another murder, um, whether it's a vigilante 
mm-hmm. citizen um, or the police. And in fact, all murder, right, is painful when you hear. Um, but certainly the issues and the instances that we're currently seeing seem rather um, brutal. And I don't know, there's just something primitive about, you know, whether it's kneeling on someone's neck or hunting someone down in the streets. And so I think visually, yes, I think that has been something that's a bit hard, you know, um, almost like Michael Brown watching him lay in the street um, for hours. Um, yeah, so it's, it's been a lot having to nurse a child, nurse a black boy, um, log on to work and be professional um, while trying to remain hopeful, but also incredibly frustrated and incredibly tired. I can I can only imagine the the stress uh, at so many different levels that that must create for you and as as you mentioned a, a poignant image of all of this going on around you while you're you're n- nursing a, a newborn son when you f- frame your your roles both as a lead legal advocate and a social change advocate can you tell us more about what that be, means to you so I think. Um, you know, when I graduated law school, I had ideas about what I wanted to do. And unfortunately, I went to school in 2007. So the the height of the financial crisis, you had to readjust um, immediately. Uh, And what I thought I wanted to go into, along with the realization of student loan debt, kind of changed the trajectory for me. Um, And what I what I found was, and I've worked in both the private and public sector, uh, for government and, and, and corporate and corporations, um, you find that you have to find a happy medium, right? So like your job may not give you all the satisfactions that you want. And so off hours after work, finding that meaningful work. And so I've, I've done that separately, um, participating in political action groups like Common Cause, um, you know, assisting with campaigns, fundraising, doing that sort of that work uh, as, a, as a, you know, volunteer. Um, and during the day, I do think that there are ways of continuing the fight for equity um, by just being my authentic self as much as you can in a professional setting, right? That's a challenge for anybody, much less as a Black woman in a corporate setting. Um, and so it is something that I think earlier on in my career, um, I made a commitment to do and to be as authentic as I can because we spend far too many hours at work to be drained being someone else. Um, And fortunately, I've worked in places in which I think I've been able to do that and accomplish that. And can you tell us a little bit more what that means for you? It's a a concept we we hear a lot about, but um, it'd be great to hear what that means on a kind of real basis for you. I mean, for, for me, I think it is always, standing up when I see injustice. And we, Mm -hmm. you can have the most intentional work environment of conscious thinkers who are well-meaning in their efforts, who slip up. And in the workplace, we are taught to sort of that fine line of not bringing politics into it, not bringing race, not bringing class, not bringing your personal life into work, even though, um, you know, hours, the hours we spend together. And it's, it's a hard effort. Um, and, you know, I've always been someone when I've heard something spoken up. Sometimes it's on my way out where I've used that as an opportunity to speak to HR or speak to senior management to tell them exactly why I decided to leave. 
Um, I've had a few instances in which unfortunately it was due to lack of equity and lack of accountability. Um, and upon my exit, you know, learning that things had improved for the folks that remained. And it's unfortunate that I had to leave jobs for that reason. Um, but encouraging to know change took place in my absence because I spoke up because other people left before me who didn't. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could also be as simply as wearing my hair naturally. I've never processed it for an interview. Um, I, this is who I am and I rather not be hired because of one's prejudices. If this is too much for you, um, then to take a job and then have to be somebody else when I arrive. Um, and I know, you know, sometimes I think about it because it's, it's not anything I've tried to do. It is just what I've done. Um, I've had people where I've gone to legal conferences or I've gone to work and have been asked, do you, you, you go to interviews with natural hair? Hmm. Um, wow. I've not even something I'd considered. I would be too afraid to do it. Um, and so I think that sometimes we do underestimate that the small actions that we take that in fact can be revolutionary for someone else can be an act of protest. Um, and, and it's so necessary in quote professional settings to, to be who you are as again, we spend so much time in these spaces that it's exhausting. And I think we're also seeing that I'm hearing that a lot with friends in their various um, employment situations that they're tired of walking that line and doing everything they think they need to do right and still feeling like you're not getting ahead or still watching, you know, that mediocre white male get a, get the promotion. Right. Um, and, you know, so I, I definitely think even if you're not on the front lines, there are many ways of protesting. And I try to bring that into the workplace as well. And I think it's important and hopefully more people feel safe in doing that. So when we look at the, the macro environment around us, Andrea, and there's no question we're at an unprecedented time in, in history and you look at the confluence of, of events with the public health and economic crisis, this massive movement for social justice, uh, and uh, a rapidly evolving legal industry that's, that's responding to this, even at the, the court level, we're seeing uh, processes evolve at a, an unbelievable rate. One of the things we've been talking through in this week's interviews, and you, you mentioned you listened to Raphael's incredible interview from earlier this week, we're, we're talking about the systemic nature of racism and inequity. We're talking about ways that we can examine really everything from public health to law enforcement, the legal system, the judicial system, and how all of those systems are are interconnected. Can, can you speak to that and, and the, the interrelationship between those various institutions and, and where systemic racism lives, lives in each? How much time do we have? I know that's um, a big question. <laughs> We've got as much time as you need. Um, look, you know, I think when we, and I don't want to minimize the fact that this is an interesting time for those of us living it, but what I caution as a society in thinking about, yes, a pandemic and the unearthing for some people of injustice in this country and Mm -hmm. for others hope that things will truly change. We've been here before. This isn't unprecedented. We have had pandemics that coincide with lynchings, that coincide with war. Um, And so, I say that to say, again, what makes this uniquely a Black American experience, and, and, and Raphael did point that out, right, is that white supremacy in this country thrives off of racism. And every group 
that was at one point not considered white has bared the wrath of white supremacy and oppression. This is uniquely a black situation, a black moment in thinking about how the traumas of it all affects us is that it's 401 years of, of that. Um, and so hopefully in delving into this and hopefully in thinking about the institutions that have codified hate and racism in our country, um, we will then improve the situations of others who are still oppressed that are not a part of the current conversation, right? So Native Americans, um, Asian and Latino Americans, um, poor Americans, um, you know, our institutions are filled with people. And I believe, you know, we talk about this idea and we're hearing a lot more about it and how do we reprogram the human mind because racism is, even if people don't want to call it that, right, the othering of us as people in this country is fundamental. It is what this country was founded upon. Um, and so one won't happen without the other. You can't bifurcate this process. We can't sort of ignore the human impact and the human desire and the human training to see skin as a, a hall pass. Um, or not, uh, and then effectuate change in the legal field, or as we saw, we see with the pandemic, the healthcare system and access and education. Um, and so, you know, I, it's, it's a frustrating thing. It's like the chicken or the egg because one can't happen without the other, but which one do we start with? Or is there a first or second, or are these things happening simultaneously? I also caution against seeing this as unprecedented times because I think it gives a pass to our leadership to to fold and to say we've never seen anything like this before we are in uncharted waters we don't know how to even respond no we've seen this before and we have responded before and let's not forget two weeks ago we had folks marching to state capitals armed and the next day states deciding to open up right so we've seen this before and we've seen whose voices are valued and our leadership cave and fold in the face of a pandemic, um, I mean, nowhere else in the world would that have happened. I mean, I've, I've traveled all over and some countries don't even allow you to bring a camera to a state house, um, much less be armed. And yet in this country, you know, it's tolerated. And so we've got a lot of fundamental flaws, but we see, we see it working for half and not the other. So the answers are in how, the answers are in how it's working for the other half. How do mm -hmm. we then share, you know? We talk to children about sharing, and for some reason, we can't figure that part out. And I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned that framing this as, as unprecedented is maybe dangerous in some ways. Uh, does it feel different to you? Does, does it feel like there's a different energy or different momentum around what we're seeing over the last two weeks? Or, or does it feel like the if we're pessimistic, I guess, just a, a repeat of the same pattern of some temporary outrage and then a return to mm -hmm. normal. Yeah, um, in my short time on earth, considering uh, how long this has been going on, I wanna be so optimistic. Um, does it bring me joy to see communities that do not have visible, visible diversity marching in the streets for people that for all intents and purposes are abstract. Um, absolutely. You did not, you have not seen that before. 
um, around the world. My parents are from a small island in the Caribbean, and there's conversation there about what's happening in the United States. I think there's a global reckoning, you know, with colonization and the effects of it, and that 400 years of the American story is still is still happening, and people are wanting to have that. Um, I am cautious in relying solely on images of Kumbaya, and I'm happy to see all folks of different ethnic backgrounds, of different economic, socioeconomic backgrounds, marching in the streets, absolutely. Um, but, you know, sort of like the Obama transcending race, you know, I feel like we rush to this other side, you know, we're like, we're there, we're getting there, there's this interwoven lacing and hands and, and love, and that is a beautiful thing. Duh, we know we're capable of that. And we've been that we've been there before. So how do we get across? How do we get the people who, for whatever reason, are hook, line, and sinker, going to follow the current administration to whatever road they're trying to lead this country down? And the reality is there's still a substantial percentage of this country that believes in whatever that mission is. I mean, I don't know what it is, but it's, you know, anything other than to me, racist ideology. Um, and so when I think about that, when I know there are communities here in my city that are closed off, insular, insulated, not interested in talking about, thinking about diversity, um, not willing to engage. And this is here in New York. You know, I have to, I know there are parts of this country. I mean, I went to law school in the South. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the things I'm seeing up north, to some extent, are more extreme than anything I would have seen down there. And so in those moments, I worry in those moments, I don't allow hope to overshadow reality. Let's maybe move our focus to the legal industry in particular. And if we're gonna dismantle systemic racism, there's obviously a, a big role that the, the legal industry uh, and the broader justice system have to play in that. What are some of the ways that you feel law firms and legal organizations need to need to change? You know, I, I still think, and, and maybe there's some sensationalization of it through, through television shows, but, you know, Mad Men culture, the fact that folks gravitated towards shows like that and this idea of these corporate um, money-hungry boys club uh, settings, I, again, I think the same thing as far as reprogramming the norm. I think there's still a lot of work to be done there to create work environments. And I think this generation, I think those of us who want to live a life of fulfillment, whether it's professional, you know, or going to work, getting your job done and going home, but being able to find some fulfillment and going to work every day um, is to see that change. It's to see a corporate culture that values all people. I think that that's going to take, whether it's, firms, whether it's in-house, whether it's government, transparency. I think people want to know that I'm being fairly compensated, that I am have access to the same uh, goalposts as my colleagues when it comes to promotions, that there is some metrics that is based on fairness, um, and that, you know, you're not, and so that's, that's the professional side of it, of the legal field, where I think those are some changes as far as staffing, as far as attracting talent, right? A diverse talent. And then moving forward, 
uh, using, as I said, I mean, we know this because our institutions reflect this, is we have hate and racism codified in this country. And so there is so much room for the legal system um, to effectuate uh, change when it comes to, to rethinking that. And our legislators, I mean, you know, many of whom are lawyers or were lawyers, practicing practitioners. Um, so hopefully I answered your question. I think there's a lot of room. Uh, and I think that we're gonna be, you know, nothing happens without having some lawyers in the room when it comes to changing law, right? And, and you did answer the question. I'd love to maybe get, you know, more specific when you, when you look at, you know, lawyers as individuals, uh, maybe, and like you said, everywhere from a solo attorney practicing in a small town up to the, the legislators that are, are, are creating the, the laws that were, that were all held to um, are influencing this system. What are some of the ways that you think the individuals that are acting in the system can do uh, you know, more maybe to educate themselves about the, the issues and, and change the frame that they're, they're using to, to look at the world? This is a tough time, right? Because we're asking folks, many of whom do not, may not even believe that they benefit from the privilege of whiteness. Um, if we're going to talk about in the context of race in this country and how it affects our legal system. Um, and, and those same people are then given the tools and discretion to essentially, if you're a prosecutor, the types of, you know, exposure that you'll have client, you know, the defendant to uh, based on your own prejudices. And so I think right now what we're finding is everyone's yearning and I'll be, you know, regular and just say, look, people are thirsty for knowledge right now, especially when it comes to their own ignorances. And mm -hmm. so I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of books there on that. Um, and I don't even need to say them because I think they're all online now and people are like talking about what books on racism. Um, I also think we need to rethink history, our history lessons, because at the end of the day, we have spent a, signif a significant amount of time erasing so many people from the story of America and the American legal system um, has not helped in that. And so what we've, what we've seen is we've seen cases where judges are exercising broad discretion if a kid comes from a great family you know they're getting a different penalty than a kid that is deemed worthless and or a lifelong criminal um you know it is the discretion that we are afforded is necessary i guess but we have to start to come to terms with the fact that these are still people uh given the power to exercise such discretion and so there's you know it's going to take more than the unconscious bias conversation at the office or the you know uh workshop um it's going to take a reprogramming and people who believe that it's worth doing and and you know look if you don't believe it's worth doing at least having law firms and companies and corporations standing behind doing the work and, and what does that deeper work look like to you when we look at the kind of conversations that need to be happening the kind of change that need to be happening um, I do think there's a problem of the window dressing type courses that we, we see the workshops, the, the online courses you take for half an hour and get some, some checkbox that obviously are not going to be the catalysts of, of real change. Um, what's it look like to go deeper and, and actually have conversations or have education at, at law firm levels that will, will drive some of the shift we need to see? You know, that's a tough one because 
you know, I truly do believe to some extent that, you know, a part of it's going to be the individual will to see change, right? What are individuals doing when they go home? What are they talking to their children about? What are they talking to their families about? Um, because it's not going to happen in isolation. You're not going to turn off your diversity radar, you know, when you leave the office. It's something I think, especially as Black people, it's something we carry and walk around with every day. So I do think what companies need to do is to continue the conversation. It cannot end when a quota is met. It cannot end when the number of senior leadership is at a desired amount. Um, and then that representation gives comfort. Um, I think we need to, we'll see it when we both see the physical and the visual uh, presence of other people outside mm -hmm. of the traditional norm. Um, and it'll be more, you know, it'll be bringing in, if you're going to have workshops, the right people, it's going to, you know, a lot of companies are going to start thinking about and talking about allyship, right? So we've talked about diversity, but we've never really encouraged the other or the, the dominant group um, from being a part of the conversation or requiring them to be a part of the conversation to, to tackle, you know, the biases that they're bringing in, um, the biases that we you know, carry with us. And so hopefully it is something that companies are then pushing their white employees to really wake up and think about so that the burden isn't bared, you know, we don't bear it just on the, the, the people of color who are doing the education, but that companies are truly um, being revolutionary in the type of workshops and trainings that they have, that they're not these, you know, boilerplate checkbox, I went to a diversity talk, I learned about unconscious bias, you know, we all have it and make people right. feel like, you know, I guess it's problem the solved. niceties, right? Problem <laughs> solved and you're not the problem and we all yeah. have this, but truly are digging deep and saying, no, while we may all have prejudices, some prejudices get other people killed. Some prejudices keep people from getting promotions. Some prejudices affect people's life livelihood um and those are the ones we really you know that's what we really need to talk about it is not it is not pretty but if we can truly get there i think we're, we're gonna get the best out of you're gonna get the best out of your staff out of your teams and out of your company i mean diversity is now going to be looked at and young people are going to want to know you know it's more than the hashtag it's more than the black screen and it's more than black lives matter we believe in you um, we may not all agree on what that looks like. And, and obviously I'm having a hard time even trying to fathom what all that would entail. But I think it's going to be a feeling and it's going to be something people are going to know, okay, that company is living up to the hash. It's living up to beyond, you know, more than just the hashtag. Right. And there's a, a concept you touched on briefly. I'd like to dig in a little bit more on, which is just this, this idea of going beyond diversity, where diversity can just be the, the window dressing. And we talk about concepts like inclusion and allyship. What does that mean to you? Can you explore that for a moment? Tough stuff. Tough stuff, Jeff. Thank you. Um, I think allyship is truly bring, I mean, we've, we've, we've seen this both when we have for women in the workplace and looking to male colleagues to truly understand. I don't think, I think most companies haven't fully gotten us there either. When we talk about equity, gender equity, um, pay equity based on gender, based on race, 
Um, allyship, I think, is going to be the times in which I've passed an office and I've heard a joke and I've watched a room full of colleagues not say anything, right? And one day, true allyship will be someone calling that out, someone saying, whatever the joke is, whatever the statement is, whatever the assumption is, is based on ignorance um, and not bearing retribution for doing so. And so that's where the company comes in, right? Where there is no retaliation for people speaking up. Um, and, that, and that employees realize that their company, it, it's more than just the hashtag, it's more than just the, you know, the diversity training or the winter. This is a company will support um, folks who are doing the right thing, right? Like a good Samaritan law, mm -hmm. um, making sure that you're showing up and that the work doesn't rest on the shoulders of the marginalized group. We're tired. And I think today what we're seeing, and at least the recognition, and, and I know from, from white friends in my life is an understanding and, and that this isn't for you. This is no longer just the burden for you. We have to do the work. We have to speak up. Yeah. And you, you talked also about the concept of reprogramming and, and just reevaluating re the building blocks that we're, uh, we're looking at in, in, in the system and the tools uh, and training we're giving new lawyers. Can, can we talk about law schools for a moment and maybe through your own experience and, and working with colleagues uh, over the course of your career, how can law schools and what we're doing in law schools be reevaluated in this context? Can we be doing more to educate newly minted lawyers about the social justice issues that can be, be tackled and maybe about the kind of systemic racism we do see in the system and how they can start to counter that and change it? Yeah, I think, you know, to your earlier point, as we talked about COVID and one of the things we are gonna have to, there's a reckoning, I think, for, uh, higher educational institutions, right? We've got folks who are homeschooling and they're going to have to rethink the cost of education. Mm -hmm. um, are people, you know, funding potentially uh, how that'll affect scholarships, how that'll affect the populace, like the students that are going to be able to afford to go and who will continue. So I think there's going to be a lot there following COVID to really think about how higher education is going to justify, one, the cost. Um, especially when maybe there isn't a job at the other end of the four years or three years in the case of law school. Um, I can give you an example of something that, and, you know, one, sort of like the professional space of thinking about it and as fundamental as it is. I remember the first few weeks of law school, um, going to class, before you're really talking, before, you know, you know who some of the hand raisers are off the bat, but you you know, you don't really know anyone. And rather quickly, you start to hear conversations about study groups. And you realize, well, shoot, no one's asked me to join their study hmm. group. How does this work? You ask around, you start to get to know people and, oh, John asked me to join the study group and Sarah asked me to join her study group. And you look around and what's left, who's left? And that tells you a part of the story, right? It doesn't, it doesn't end even in this professional setting. And that then goes on to work, right? Those people, that mentality, not even recognizing there's anything flaw, like a fatal flaw in that, right? Right. Um, in that you are alienating before you, you know, I haven't been able to, none of these people have proven their intelligence, but off the bat, 
we're not invited to the table. We're not a part of those study groups. Um, and then flash forward, the months go by, you start to get to know people. Folks then tell you, oh, I wish I had added you to my study group. Why are all the black kids in the same study group? Um, you know, and it's just, it's, a, it's an unfortunate, exhausting, never ending story. Um, you don't get to higher education and then the corporate setting as a black person in America and not having had a story like that. Um, and so, you know, can it be left to professors to change that? Again, it is something where we're gonna have to reprogram ourselves and maybe, and again, call it out, whether mm -hmm. it's the actual students who are setting it up, these are adults or professors or the institution that encourages um, diverse study groups, calls out the fact that in the past, we've had these unfortunate traditional ways of identifying folks you wanna study with who for whatever reason, we know, um, you feel intellectually are on your level and another group of people you don't think are intellectually on your level. Um, I, think, I think there's gonna have to be a lot of calling out and it, it may not be nice and it won't feel great, but neither is being on the receiving end of being ignored. And I'm, I'm curious on a personal level on the other side of law school, you, you, you've alluded to this a uh, couple of junctures of our conversation around experiencing firsthand, so maybe experiences that even cause you to, to leave jobs. Can you tell us what you've experienced on that front? You know, equity is a huge thing. Um, today we were talking about it a lot, right? I think there's the idea of equality and then equity. And uh, you, I've had situations in which you've observed, you know, because of this country, we don't really talk about salaries. You don't really mm -hmm. know what other people make. It, it's the lack of transparency. It's hard to hold accountable a company. Um, there are many times, you know, many lawsuits, many lawsuits about, you know, people of color not being compensated fairly. It's a really hard thing to prove under the cloud of secrecy. Um, and so oftentimes it is either in someone's exit in having an honest discussion about compensation that you realize, oh wow, I am grossly underpaid. Um, or the workload that this person received through, you know, some of the things I've heard friends talk to me about or, you know, when there's a lot of water cooler conversation, whether it's around sports or some other conversation that you're not necessarily a part of, you know, and the person then says, oh, that guy's a great guy. You know, she's great, she's super smart, you know, maybe one interaction, but just enough to give you credit. Um, you know, I think I've, I've come across scenarios in which that has been the case where there's, it's hard to break in socially um, because there, there's such perceived differences um, and people just not wanting to get to know me or not wanting to get to know their black or brown colleague. Um, and I can't speak to all of the reasons why that exists, I think many of, which we're seeing kind of materialize and then come up in more conversations um, and people are writing about. Um, but I think in the, I think in the workplace, that's, that's something that a lot of people are really starting to think about. Um, and we know this because we know that women are unfairly compensated. We know that there is a compensation issue, um, but that's just one, um, you know, a lack of transparency in that space. And so hopefully again, I've answered your question there. Absolutely. Um, and Andrew, there's obviously so much we could talk about on, uh, on this set of topics. Um, before we wrap up today, is there anything we haven't delved into that you'd like to spend some time exploring? 
there's probably a ton and I know I took some <laughs> I thought about I thought about this because I wanted it to be meaningful but I, I do want to say I think it's I think it's noble of you and other people who are interested in hearing from everyday people um I think right now you know I'm not on Twitter I don't remember my Facebook account information and I only go on Instagram when I'm on vacation so you know if you're not online you know diary of the mouth uh, talking about issues, commenting, you know, it's hard to be heard. It's hard to be seen. Um, and so much of the conversation outside of even Brianna, when we think about this is oftentimes when we think about the black body, the black experience and trauma, and rightfully so for many reasons, we think of black male. And so I will say that I appreciate, um, in, you know, you guys being open to chatting with me, um, as a black woman who, I think many of us feel oftentimes are just ignored. Um, and I think that also is something that in thinking about race and thinking about the inequities and thinking about the violence, that there is a silent killer in feeling like you are not even a part of a society um, and feeling like your voice isn't being heard um, because no one wants to listen to it. And so, you know, unless I guess it's on a TV show or music or something, you know, pop culture driven. So I do think that that is, I, I just wanted to say thank you for that because I, I think there are a lot of voices like mine out there who, you know, you kind of feel like, uh, you know, a lot of people probably think the things that I think, I don't really need to go write about it. I don't need to advertise it. Um, but I think a lot of people have a lot to say and I'm hoping that folks start to listen and start to listen to their colleagues and are listening to their friends and, you know, more than just reaching out, but really listening. I think that's going to be very important right now. Well, thank you in turn for sharing your voice with us today, Andrea. I appreciate it. And as a, as a parting question, uh, would love your reflection on what a more just and equitable system would look like to you. Mm. If something like that even existed or could exist, I would argue that there's a population of people who've experienced that. And so I don't think we need to go very far to see how that works for some. What we need to do is apply it to the others. And I don't think any more reading, I don't think any more chatting or talking about it necessarily will bring us there faster. I think it can happen because we're acknowledging that there's an equity um, and there's an equity for a portion of the population. And so let's go look at the other people who seem to be mostly happy. Look at people who are not used to hearing no, where they can go, what they can't do, how they should protest, how they should grieve, how they should feel um, and afford those same privileges to those of us who've never been given the flexibility and the latitude um, to grieve, to protest the way we want, um, to, to be free in this country. And I, you know, I'd like to, I think, I think again, it's, it's almost to the same level of saying this is uh, unprecedented times and not giving a path to our leadership and saying, well, we don't know how to deal with it. Well, no, we do, because there's some real happy people in this country. You know, there are people who don't have to one day educate their sons on what to say to a, not only a police officer, but good God, citizens who are now demanding that you tell them where you're going, what you're doing and why you belong. Um, you know, 
I don't think we need to go far to imagine what that kind of equity would look like because it exists. I just think we need to now fairly apply it across the board to all Americans and globally, obviously all people. And it does feel like if nothing else, maybe it's an unprecedented opportunity for all of us right now. Absolutely. And I think you said this on one of your other shows and being that this is about technology, right? It is the fact that we are capturing this. We are videoing this. We are seeing this um, sometimes in real time um, right. or shortly thereafter. And I think to your point, right, those are things that are unprecedented where in the past we can just say we don't believe. And now there is a visual aid to say, well, this is real. So how do you explain this one away? Um, and it, it, it is right. unfortunate that we need that. But yes. Well, thanks so much again for the wonderful conversation today and the, the perspectives you offered, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Keep up the amazing work and you and your newborn son stay safe. Thank you so much. And thank you. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com.